This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard one more time, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here, hosting Core Brain Journal, and we have yet another terribly interesting guest. I mean, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm lucky to be here, and you're lucky to be here with me listening to Dr. Jay Lombard, an expert. He's a neurologist by training, but he is a deep maven on all kinds of interesting stuff. And tonight, some of the things we're going to be talking about is the genetics of psychiatry and what could be done to get things straight when people are treatment failures. Welcome aboard, Jay. We're so happy to have you on board. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Quick disclaimer. I know, Jay, from the past, we have been distant friends. It's just fun to renew our acquaintance. And we'll talk some more later on about what he told me walking in the woods after we had mutual presentations at a, at a conference up in uh, Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. So the introduction, real quickly, will be in just a second. Let me say a few words from our sponsors before we begin. Core Brain Journal is supported by Direct Health Access Laboratory with over three million studies. They're deep leaders of experience with the big picture of measuring just, for example, methylation, cryptopyrrole, and copper challenges. They provide a global service with a molecular focus. See more laboratory details at dhalab.com forward slash core, C-O-R-E. Corbin Journal is also supported by the nonprofit Barry Robinson Center team's in Norfolk, Virginia, who provide residential care on an evolved family, interpersonal, and global level for children and adolescents who are treatment failures in different other parts of, you know, treatment land, wherever it happens to be. And these folks are very, very interested in putting together packages that are more comprehensive, really in tune with what we're going to be talking about tonight. They're, they're doing genetic testing there. They're really above the standard of care of residential care. So take a look over at barryrobinson.org forward slash core. That's B-A-R-R-Y robinson.org forward slash core. And they have lots of information about what we're doing over there. So let me introduce you folks to Dr. Jay Lombard. Very interesting guy, an internationally acclaimed neurologist and author and keynote speaker who creates solutions for brain health and intractable neurologic disorders. Who is not interested in that? Dr. Lombard integrates biological, psychological, and existential components in his holistic treatment approach. He's the co-founder and the creator of Genomind, a medicine company utilizing genetic testing to improve neuropsychiatric conditions, which I was talking about a moment ago, but get this, including Alzheimer's, autism, and depression. The founder of TEDMED, and we all know about TED Talks, TEDMED, Jay Walker, describes Dr. Lombard as, quote, part Freud, part Sherlock Holmes. Wouldn't we all like to be that? <laughs> deep, deep compliment. Dr. Lombard's uh, discoveries have been recorded as key opinion leaders as functionally, as fundamentally shifting the paradigm of psychiatric medicine. That is what we're talking about tonight. The paradigm is shifting, and Dr. Lombard is going to help us with it. 
So he's the chief of neurology at both Westchester Square Medical Center and Bronx Lebanon Hospital. He was a previous, 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 not currently was. I didn't say was loud enough there. And <laughs> <Got it. laughs> uh, he was a clinical assistant professor at New York Presbyterian Hospital and Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He's been published extensively in medical textbooks, peer-reviewed papers, medical journals as well. He has authored several popular nonfiction works related to the effects of nutrition on the brain, including The Brain Wellness Plan. His newest book, The Mind of God, I've heard good things about this, explores the relationship between neuroscience and faith and is set for release June 13, 2007, so it's probably out there already. No, to, to, yeah, tw uh, 613, actually, um, of 2017. No, it already came out. <laughs> yeah, just checking. The book is <laughs> you, it's one of those things, that an author, when you're an author, you're so involved with the doggone thing, and it's like, how do we get all this stuff to happen? I'm so working on my second proposal already. We can talk about that because I'm very excited about that as well. But, oh, well, yeah, let's, but let's do talk about it. But he's also been an advisor to Academy Award-winning directors, uh, Jonathan Dammy and Martin Scorsese, who has never heard of him, who's, who's not heard of Martin Scorsese, on Hollywood feature films. He's been on Larry King Live, Ted Med, CBS News, Food Network, and hung out with Dr. Oz. Yes. So right now, he's the, currently the chief scientific officer at Genomind, as we were talking about the genetic testing, and is in private practice as the clinical director of neuroscience at Lifespan Medicine, where he's well known for his compassion and dedication to his patients. Jay is a smart guy, and he is a sweetheart of a guy. He cares about what he's doing, no question about it. So, Jay, how did you get into the deeper, uh, the, chasing these details down that seem so obscure and so arcane and so, in a way, non-traditional? How did you start to make that change? I think that, you know, when we try to understand our own brain, uh, because, you know, we really are in many ways our brains, everything that we do, uh, experience and remember is all because of our brain functionality. I think that there are two ways of exploring it. Uh, one is going as deep down into a reductionistic approach to look at the molecular aspects of behavior, to understand the physiology of the human connectome, uh, how DNA expression is uh, affected by experience. But I think the, the, the other aspect is, is really existential and understanding sort of the mind. And in many ways, uh, I, I, I kind of half jokingly say that psychiatry has lost its mind, meaning that we've thrown away a lot of the most valuable insights of Freud and other uh, predecessors um, in psychiatry for this purely reductionistic approach to, to medicine. And I think that we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater in the process. So true. I mean, what is reductionistic? It's like everything's a med. Just throw the med at them and don't ask any questions. Find a label, a superficial label based on appearances, not involved with science, and just right. throw some meds at them. Talk to you later. Got to go. Hope that works. It's, it's, it's uh, the standard of care is appearance medicine. Yeah. And I think it's even worse than that because we're the average psychiatrist right now is seeing you know, 20 to 25 patients a day for medical management. Uh, we're seeing all these uh, atrocious acts being committed almost on a daily basis now, mass shootings and, and other episodes of just, you know, completely irrational, violent behavior. And yet really the onus of understanding 
and identifying uh, these conditions really should sit on behavioral health experts. And yet, uh, all they do essentially is, is you know, throw out antipsychotic medications, which uh, have more adverse effects than, than effects. Um, and we are really in a, in a deep existential hole as a society, uh, which is kind of what motivates me to, to get up every day to, to work against that system that is so destructive to, to patients' well-being. We're, we're brothers from a different mother, Jay. I'll tell you that. No question about it. <laughs> because what happens is uh, it's, been our, it's been our message here at Core Brain Journal since we started. And what happens is there are a lot of people who are, share your concern and are looking forward to it. So let's take it the next step. And that is when you made that turn into the deeper the the deeper uh, research and understanding of the genetics. How did all that take place? Um, yeah, so we could talk about sort of the the molecular biology of of neuropsychiatric diseases, and and I'll try to distill it down into sort of the the core essence of what we've discovered, which is that the majority of of genes related uh, to psychiatric diseases um, either produce a over excitation of certain neurotransmitters in the brain, like glutamate, uh, which produces um, a, an abnormal depolarization of brain cells, or conversely, there is a, a, a an excessive hyperpolarization of neurons, particularly in, in areas of dopamine neurotransmission that are fundamental to our ability to experience pleasure. So if we, if we understand sort of the, a basic principle that Freud first talked about, that the pain-pleasure principle, and we apply sort of that knowledge to our molecular understanding of the biology of these conditions, i.e. glutamate and dopamine, uh, the, the data reveals itself. In other words, we, we found uh, for one major example is that a, a single gene overlaps in very uh, different and unique psychiatric disorders, um, which otherwise, as they have appearances, uh, are very different. So that gene is called the calcium channel gene. Uh, it is regulating ion channels, which produce um, excitability uh, in brain cells, and that there are variants of this gene that lead to abnormal or excessive depolarization of neurons in conditions as broadly uh, and as different as schizophrenia, autism, uh, major depression, uh, PTSD, and, and even ADHD. And that, that tells us that there are these fundamental pathways that we can observe and understand so that we can actually treat the underlying molecular disturbances as opposed to taking a symptomatic drug that doesn't address the, the core abnormality. So the, really the value of genetics and psychiatry is more targeted therapy and targeted specifically not at symptoms, but underlying altered physiology. And really what's happening with the neurotransmitters themselves as opposed to just collecting the chickens. You know, what happens, meds do collect the chickens to some degree in the, in the chicken ranch of the brain, but, which are neurotransmitters. But the issue, is, the issue is the basic chicken construct in the first place. And what, Now, let's talk yeah, about that yeah. polarization concept because I know some of our listeners would like to understand that a little more. That's, that's an inside term. And now, yeah. clarify mm -hmm. this on the polarization. Are you talking about that it keeps the... Uh, the activity, the neuro, neurophysiologic activity from taking place because they're depolarized or is it making it ha happen accessible? 
So think about, as by way of analogy for your, for your listeners, that you're looking at New York City at night and you're seeing all the lights flickering in the various apartments across the city landscape. And those lights flickering on and off resemble neuronal activity of the brain. So the, the lights go on when we depolarize cells um, that produces activation or excitation of various regions of the brain. And when the lights go off, we call that hyperpolarization or inhibition. And the brain, like the heart, uh, is an oscillating organ, meaning that it, it's, it's constantly changing its state from a state of excitation to a state of inhibition. And we actually measure this commonly in neurology through EEG, right? EEG just measuring the, the rate of depolarization of, of these cells. The problem with EEG, however, is you're only getting the surface electrodes so the activity that you're monitoring is, is, in psychiatry, much deeper than just the cortex. We know that a lot of psychiatric diseases um, are what we call subcortical. They, they, their origins are deeper than just the cortex, and that's why uh, we can't really monitor them very effectively with the EEG. So well said. I mean, you know, and then we get into all the, you know, the limbic systems, the basal ganglia, and, and then we get into the neurotransmitters, which so there are brain regions that have, that do certain things, and then we have specific neurotransmitter systems that also do certain things. So the issue is, I think it's so interesting because uh, I've always been interested in the cytochrome P450 system. It was an easy thing to get into, which is really not the brain, but the liver. And because yeah. I, I came at it from a traditional psych point of view, and that is how come these meds aren't working? You know, I'm giving the meds correctly based on this superficial diagnosis, but I'm shooting blanks. And I know what should be happening, but this person's telling me it's not happening. And somewhere in there is when I became interested in just the first pathway way before it gets up to the liver, I mean, to the brain, which is the liver pathway and the cytochrome P450 system. So you guys do yep. something with all of that. So, yeah, so we, we at, at, at Genomine do two things. We check what, what you're describing, which is called pharmacokinetics, which is the behavior um, of a drug in a person's body based upon those, those enzymes that break down the drug, you know, and degrade it for excretion. Um, and the majority of psychiatric drugs are very much impacted uh, by those cytochrome enzymes in a way that when we give a certain dose of a medication, you could see very variable responses uh, based upon drug metabolism. The second sort of broad category of genetics and psychiatry, though, is much more interesting, uh, both, I think, for psychopharmacologists, but even the general public. So it's worth explaining that, that these genes are genes that are related to proteins in the brain that regulate neurotransmission. They actually regulate serotonin metabolism, uh, glutamate metabolism, and dopamine metabolism is just three examples. Uh, but those are also impactful in both our understanding of how uh, variants in those genes not only affect drug response, but also affect the, the phenotype of a psychiatric disease as well. The way it looks. Phenotype, folks, is the way it looks on the outside. So it's right. not only what's going on on the inside, but it's sort of like what, what we actually see clinically in the office. Correct. So then what, what's, what I'm just translating Jay a little bit, guys, because, uh, you know, he's a, deep, he's a deep neuroscience guy. But what we're saying here is there are many different um, 
internal situations that have to do with the way a body metabolizes the meds and uses meds are, pardon me, I don't even know why I said that because it's, it's not meds alone. It's the way the body actually manages itself. It's more than just meds. Uh, the window into it is through the meds and recognizing they're not working the way they should. And then this raises all these other questions of what's going on with the neurophysiology down to a synaptic, down to a, uh, even transporter proteins in the presynaptic nerve. So you got all kinds of things going on there. And I remember very well that after a presentation, we, we you know, we, we did, we gave a talk, uh, you know, two, obviously two different talks, but Jay and I were met at a, a meeting up in uh, Massachusetts and we were taking a walk in the, in the woods on a path, just taking a break from all the activities. And, and Jay was telling me, you know, and I, I'm going to have you tell it Jay, because it was news to me about the nuances of some of the things that a person can see that's absolutely relevant to everyday psychiatric practice. Why don't we tell our listeners about that? Sure. So it's a gene that's called the serotonin transporter gene that regulates the presence or absence of serotonin, a very important neurotransmitter that mediates homeostasis for the brain. Um, and this gene actually regulates the ability of that neurotransmitter to go back into the presynaptic neuron. And what's been discovered is that particularly in Caucasians, uh, less so in Asians, I know that you have a wide listenership uh, in the East, so this is more applicable for Caucasians for whatever reason, but we know that those individuals who have inherited a defect in the serotonin transporter um, are more liable to experience symptoms of PTSD and treatment-resistant depression. And the reason for this uh, is not exactly known, uh, but there are some theories that have to do with the relationship of serotonin to a hormone called cortisol, the fight-or-flight um, hormone. But the importance of identifying the serotonin transporter defect genetically uh, is mostly clinically relevant. And we know that there are a lot of factors in addition to genetics that can regulate the transporter protein, including low dose of lithium, uh, as well as estrogen. Um, and this may account for why we see cyclical dysfunction uh, in mood disorders in women, um, uh, particularly premenstrually, as a result of alterations in estrogen levels that then thereby affect serotonin levels in the brain. So let's talk a little more even precisely about that. So it's, I really appreciate you reminding me about that. And the issue is what, what Dr. Lombard is saying here, folks, is that these other um, communication systems that are going on in the body, for example, you know, the endocrine system and the estrogen can actually affect that transporter activity so that it would actually interfere with the transporter, which is the recycling of the neurotransmitter back into that presynaptic nerve. This is molecular physiology, my friends, and it's available right here with commonplace testing. I mean, it's not commonplace because not everybody can really read it, but I mean, I know Genomine does such a good job of reporting it that you don't really have to be a rocket science person to understand the application. The, the results are there on paper of why this medication is not working. So, what Jay told me when we were walking along, he said, hey, Parker, you know, th this, <laughs> this low-dose serot this low dose lithium can actually affect 
that serotonin transporter. I remember that very well. Let's talk a little bit about that, if you will, Jay. Sure. I think that, uh, you know, this idea of low-dose lithium uh, has really gone mainstream in the last uh, years. Uh, and it's certainly, I think, you know, very, you know, very, a very positive development in traditional neuroscience, because when we talked about this, it must have been, God, maybe eight or eight, eight years ago, I'm guessing, yeah. uh, that that observation was made clinically. Um, but the, the reality is that, that low-dose lithium, people are afraid of lithium because uh, they traditionally associate with, you know, manic depression and all sorts of side effects, but, but low-dose lithium are doses that are well below the doses that are used uh, for an acute psychiatric disorder like mania. We're talking about, you know, 20 milligrams or less. And what lithium does in the brain uh, is vitally important to understand. It increases a neurotrophic factor that helps promote the growth of neurons. Uh, it's a protein called BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So lithium is one of the key elements of increasing the amount of BDNF. And BDNF has been associated with what's called resilience. When we get hit in the head or we have trauma, emotional or physical trauma, uh, the, ba the brain relies on the production of BDNF to actually promote neurogenesis, to promote new brain growth. And lithium is one of the cofactors that supports BDNF production to enhance resilience. So clinically, the data has been shown, and there's lots of data on this, that low-dose lithium may prevent the progression uh, of uh, dementia in certain subsets of patients. Uh, low-dose lithium also may actually have a beneficial effect uh, in other conditions besides uh, dementia. Um, and I think that people are beginning to pay a lot more attention to it. But one of its mechanisms, as we described, walking through the woods that day in a snowy day up uh, in Kripalu, uh, was that an unidentified marker of of lithium's potential benefit, maybe for people who have that abnormality in the serotonin transporter. Uh, and by taking low-dose lithium, we are actually potentially switching that abnormality to a functional transporter protein. I think that's what we talked about back in the day. That's exactly right. Yeah, I was like, oh, you know, it's fun when a light bulb goes on. It's many years ago, and you and I haven't talked for, for many years, really. And we're talking yep. here, it's like, bingo, I still remember that very well because I really appreciate it. It's like, oh my gosh, that is such an interesting point because I've been into the whole genetic testing concept. I really hadn't gotten into it until, you know, shortly after that when I realized this was immediately available. When I got interested in genetic testing originally, it was, uh, I think the, the outfit was Genelex and I think they were in Seattle and it cost like yep. $1,000 to get to get a test and nobody could afford a thousand dollars because you couldn't sell it because no one even knew what it was. Even <laughs> if you knew what it was, no one else knew what it was. So there was no sense in even talking about it. But with the advances, yeah. like what Dr. Lombard's talking about here is this is everyday practice with a lot of individuals and knowing about that serotonin transporter makes a significant difference in people's lives. It's amazing. It also the other the other benefit of lithium. If I can come back to that, it's the only uh, compound uh, in the psychiatric armamentarium to date which has been shown that it reduces suicidal ideation. So that uh, a lot of people with depression have suicidal ideation, and 
uh, you know, obviously people need to know that lithium can be used as an augmentation strategy uh, alongside traditional antidepressants for that purpose. And it's never been, you know, fully uh, unequivocally described as being an agent that may reduce suicidal ideation, but it's such a non-toxic compound in low doses. In fact, there's also studies that have shown that in areas where lithium is depleted in the soil, uh, there's a higher likelihood of aggressive behavior, including homicides and suicides, compared to populations that have higher uh, lithium in the soil. Um, and even 7-Up was initially marketed uh, with lithium uh, to compete with Coca-Cola, which had cocaine in it. So it's very, historically, there's a lot of interest in, in the whole lithium story. That's why seven was up, huh? <laughs> that, that's why seven was up. But really, the, you know, well, who knows? <laughs> I wasn't back then to know. No, no, I mean, yeah, I, I just think it's interesting. <laughs> now, let's, re, listeners, let's pay attention to this point. Now, what Dr. Lombard's talking about, this isn't something to go in and ask your psychiatrist to get 300 milligrams of lithium for you know, and take it at bedtime. This is not what he's talking about. He remember the dose that he was talking about is a low, low dose of 20 milligrams. And or less. Fact, or, or less, or less, even, even, you know, 15, you tell me, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm Look, not, there's, 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 you got, yeah, there's still, there's still debate around that. Um, so there's even studies that show micro dosing of lithium uh, at one milligram or less may be sufficient uh, as a maintenance dose for the average person. So just, you know, obviously people need, you know, who need lithium for, you know, one purpose. We're not talking about a, for treatment. We're talking about its effects as, a, as an essential nutrient, just as we think of zinc and magnesium as an essential nutrient. And winds up being an augmentation strategy. Now, we're going to take a quick break here, Jay, and I'm going to come back and ask you this question because you got us stimulated on depression. It's an easy one to see the need for. I mean, and really starting to understand the neurophysiology of the transport of proteins is a big deal. It's way beyond cytochrome P450, which you guys do a good job with on the front end. But the next question I want to ask you after we take this break is what are the implications? How does this all work with some of these more, what would be considered by many, untreatable conditions like Alzheimer's, autism, some of those things that we briefly touched upon when we started. Let's take a moment to talk more about those when we return. Let's take a break now. Well, folks, you know as well as I do that psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medication trials and those very, very brief hospitalizations, may prove insufficient to deal at home with the complexity of troubled children and, and those adolescents from 6 to 17 years old. Improved care, those next mandatory steps, should include a more comprehensive approach to address those multiple levels of challenges, from family to peers to school, diagnostically from defiance to depression, on every level for families, including military families, internationally. The Barry Robinson Center's 32-acre open college-like campus in Norfolk, Virginia, provides safety and security and clean, comfortable living how do we know we refer folks over there all the time, strongly endorse what they're doing? So for further information and informed interview, connect at this page, barryrobinson.org forward slash core. Well, you folks already know that here at Core Brain Journal, we're on a mission to introduce you to resources that make significant contributions 
to the investigation of those predictable mind science applications. Our colleagues at DHA Lab Group provide a real difference with treatment options for people at every level, from first awareness of mind problems to those frustrating times when even well-informed treatment becomes surprisingly unpredictable. For my entire professional life, from psychoanalysis to brain scans, I've searched for, yes, improved predictability. The good news for all of us, from professionals to patients, remarkably effective research offers useful, cost-effective, organic options far beyond guesswork with psychiatric medications alone. DHA lab tests measure unbalanced biomedical details through easily available testing, now available globally for a variety of molecular answers from, for example, methylation, copper, and cryptopyrrole challenges. Check in for more details at dhalab.com core. That's d-h-a-l-a-b.com forward slash core. Well, Jay, once again, I want to thank you for coming on board. It's so nice and so pleasant to renew our acquaintance. And I can't tell you how much I admire your work and, and the work of individuals like Gentle Mind doing these really remarkable things. And they're, and they're available in every, every doctor's offices. That any, any doctor that's interested in it can get some training and figure out how to do this and actually uh, increase the possibility, diminish the possibility of treatment failure. And that's, that's a big deal. So tell us about the Alzheimer, autism, and see, I don't know enough about to ask the question correctly. Are they related in some way, or is there a way you can break them out in a way we can understand that in terms of uh, understanding those uh, genetic maladaptions? Yep. Um, so let's uh, talk about the uh, clinical biology of depression, right? Um, and I think that we can understand it, uh, in ways that are not very complicated at all. So, um, dopamine is, is one of the primary neurotransmitters. We think of serotonin as being a principal neurotransmitter, uh, but it's not. Uh, dopamine is the primary neurotransmitter, uh, that is involved in hedonism, our ability to experience pleasure, uh, when we have an experience. And we know that dopamine metabolism is also affected genetically. So I think that, you know, a, a lot of people are in this sort of, I think, mistaken mythology that we can simplify neurotransmitters uh, and describe, you know, serotonin levels as being low or high. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just the wrong way to think about these things. So, I mean, any sort of questions you have about that, I'd be glad to answer. But I think that we're at risk of oversimplifying these, these very complicated uh, disorders Mm -hmm. by trying to just, you know, hook a single neurotransmitter onto them. Mm -hmm. This is why I think the data on uh, calcium channels specifically is relevant, okay? So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a conversation. I, I'm not sure how uh, deep we should go into it on this uh, because, obviously, uh, it's a complicated topic, but I can answer any. Specific I would just run. At, I would just run out of jail. I'll tell you why. Because one of the reasons we're doing this is not only you're going to train me right now because you're talking. You're on the edge of what I know, so I'm looking forward to it. And but the other issue is, I think if we just enlarge the conversation, get the vocabulary down, and get the concepts down, we're not going to go out and become you know board certified with this, and we're not going to run out and tell our doctors what to do necessarily. But I think if we get the concept 
then we would understand why testing like genomine testing is applicable and usable in everyday practice. So what about those calcium channels? What's going on with them? So they, they're, they're gating mechanisms, meaning that they are responsible for the excitation or the inhibition of, uh, you know, the brain itself. So when we have these ion channels uh, affected by genes, it affects the balance or the homeostasis of the excitation and the inhibition of the brain. It actually changes the function of the neurotransmitters. It, it changes the, uh, particularly glutamate. So there's a direct relationship of calcium channels to the neurotransmitter glutamate. Mm -hmm. So then the next question then, so we've jumped from serotonin where we started with depression. You hit a little bit on dopamine. Let's dive a little more into glutamate and its relevance for some of these other clinical conditions. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, so we can talk about, uh, you know, any condition particularly, because I think that what's been happening in psychiatry and where we see sort of a, a ground swelling of change uh, is that the, uh, the, 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 uh, we, we previously are describing these conditions based on something called DSM, which is, like you said earlier, just an appearance, just the symptoms, just a describing of a psychiatric disorder without really any kind of uh, insight into the underlying physiology. And what genetics allows us to do is to probe deeper into the physiology uh, of these uh, network systems. So what we're seeing in our genetic discoveries is that conditions that are as diverse as bipolar, which a person can have you know, high mood lability, uh, or a person with dementia who is just essentially, uh, you know, progressing with neurodegenerative changes in the brain, uh, or an autistic child that looks very different, obviously, than either of those two conditions, can uh, be understood to have overlapping pathophysiological changes related to those balance of excitation and inhibition in the brain. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And so one would, one would imagine that these conditions, if they're not being stimulated correctly, could go to a uh, low-grade chronic deterioration. Yep, exactly. And so in, inflammation, can inflammation change that over time? There's a lot of talk about inflammation as it relates to uh, Alzheimer's, and there's a lot of talk in toxins as it relates to autism. So do these um, maladaptive um, challenges, do they actually change, they change neurologic function? Yep, exactly. That's right. And, you know, I think that with the understanding of inflammation to psychiatry is something that, you know, 10 years ago, people really, you know, sort of looked away at. And I think now uh, we're starting to realize that that is uh, just, you know, a completely uh, the dismissal of the relationship with such an oversight by neuroscientists, because there is no question, it's unequivocal, that the, for the majority of psychiatric diseases, as well as many, many neurological conditions, that inflammation and degeneration of the brain 
are, are two, you know, bandits in the same foxhole, if you will, or whatever the analogy you want to use. <laughs> and we need to understand, we understand that, that physiology as well. I mean, it's related to a, uh, a uh, prostaglandin called arachidonic acid, which is, you know, a byproduct of lipid metabolism. So when certain lipids break down, they form arachidonic acid. And arachidonic acid acts as an excitatory neurotransmitter. It actually prevents the reuptake of glutamate, uh, so that glutamate becomes a more of a depolarizing, uh, excitotoxic neurotransmitter. And you know, we we now know that anti-inflammatory agents in certain cases have antidepressant effects. So that glutamate actually accumulates, and when it accumulates, the more it accumulates, the more neurotransmission activities are diminished. Yep, exactly. So, and yep. that, go ahead. Sorry, please. No, that's it. Yeah, I think that what we're seeing is novel antidepressant responses to things that we classically would not have thought had antidepressant effects. For instance, we, you know, we now know that omega-3 fatty acids in certain patients have antidepressant effects. Um, we know that, you know, in, in some patients, uh, vitamin D levels are low and that vitamin D has antidepressant effects because it's an anti-inflammatory, you know, hormone. Uh, so there's lots of examples of non-pharmaceutical agents that can help benefit the brain that are related to the anti-inflammatory effect. They lower IL-6, for instance, or they lower uh, C-reactive protein levels uh, that are abnormal in these conditions. And, um, you know, we can just go on and on and talk about these discoveries because they, they really lend themselves to a whole larger amount of interventions beyond just traditional psychopharmacology. Now, apropos of that point, I think one of the things that I think we're in a transition in, in psychopharmacology and in all of mind science. One of the things I like to talk about, Jay, is this, uh, I think we're in a, a Galileo mind moment and we're, we're really haven't looked through the telescopes. We don't, we think telescopes are, are uh, snake oil. And yet when you actually get out of your belief system that the sun is rotating around Rome, and you get into the telescope and you look at what's actually going on, the universe changes dramatically. And I think uh, individuals like yourself are thought leaders in terms of really going into the telescopic vision that's really available to people on the street in Tallahassee. I mean, this is the, the kind of things that Genomind does and the things that you are talking about here. They're a little deep for the average person, but you know, calcium channels, glutamate activity, and significantly deteriorated brain function are one thing, but we see people that are bothered on an everyday basis, commonplace individuals that are treatment failure using traditional, straight up, here's the diagnosis, take this medication treatment. It just, the limitations are pervasive, and that's one of the reasons there's such a stigma with psychiatry, and you know this even better than I do, because we see it happen all the time. They hate to come in and see a psychiatrist, and they certainly don't want to tell somebody they're seeing a psychiatrist. Why? Because there's a commonplace belief, pardon me for getting on my soapbox a little bit, but the, that, that the whole thing is, uh, is limited and somebody is going to do what we're talking about here. Here's the diagnosis. We'll throw some meds at you. And I think when, one of the things and why I'm so happy to have you on is because with a little more understanding, precision occurs. You can see the universe for what it is. It's, it's pretty darn interesting. Yep, absolutely. 
So how, tell us a little more. We started getting off there on the calcium channels and, and, and glutamate. Now, glutamate or the glutamate activity is modified by calcium channels. So if the calcium channels are closed, you have an increase of glutamate. If they're open, you have a decrease. No, no, just the opposite. No, goes glutamate the other way. actually, yeah, so glutamate uh, binds to sub-receptors in the brain. They're called NMDA receptors, mm -hmm. uh, but there are other glutamate receptors as well. But when glutamate binds to uh, its postsynaptic receptor, it produces a conformational change in the receptor so that the ion channel goes open. And when the, when the ion channel opens up, two ions flow into the cell, uh, sodium and or calcium. And by the way, I, you know, it's very interesting. I just remembered now, like 20 years ago, I had one patient with epilepsy that uh, before any of the discoveries of ion channels even uh, was known, who his wife told me whenever he eats a lot of salt, he has a seizure. I'm like, oh, that's just totally nonsense. And now that we know that, you know, changes in sodium and calcium alter the ion flux and actually produce, you know, these changes in, in not only cell activity, but in the behavior of a person themselves. So there's a direct connection between the uh, abnormality of these ion channels and behavior. And that's what's so fascinating that we actually can trace the molecular uh, effects of these uh, these, these ion channels. Uh, and when a person uh, or a patient has a defect in these channels, they're more likely to express certain symptoms like irritability or, or mood lability uh, with a higher propensity of having these alterations uh, that would not normally be as likely to be seen in a person who doesn't have those abnormalities. And in fact, they wouldn't. And in fact, if they took medications for them, the medications wouldn't work predictably. There's an unpredictable response to medications, which are only addressing a very small part of this other complex picture going on. Well, the interesting thing is I think that, you know, a lot of drug discovery in psychiatry and neurology is anecdotal. We think that we're so smart and we could actually, you know, conform to a specific neurotransmitter and then develop a drug that, that you know, blocks a certain receptor. But really, it's the other way around. We, we found that these drugs worked for these, for these conditions. Uh, and then understood the mechanisms of why they work. So all the anticonvulsant drugs, for instance, that are used not only for epilepsy, but also for bipolar. Uh, and in fact, there's a lot of comorbidity between bipolar and, and uh, um, uh, 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 epilepsy mm -hmm. that, you know, they, they, it all traces back to these ion channels, high glutamate and excessive depolarization. And the significance of this for the average listener or even for the doctor is that when you're using a medication like lithium or an anti-seizure medication, we're using even hormonal therapy like progesterone, uh, which is in, in sort of an endogenous calcium channel blocker in the brain. Uh, it's nice to know that what you're doing is that you're providing that patient with an ability to normalize an otherwise abnormal physiological system. You know, Jay, we have to wind up, unfortunately, but I'm telling you, you have dropped so many interesting information bombs right here on everybody that's listening. I mean, when you think about where we started the conversation, we we're talking about a walk in the woods. Then we went into cytochrome P450. We hit depression. We hit calcium channel loggers. We're talking about sodium and calcium, and we're talking about bipolar illness. 
And really, I like that little side trip we took down BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, and resilience and lithium. I mean, we've covered a lot of material in a short period of time. What's going to happen, listeners, you're just going to have to listen to it again. I'm going to tell you, listeners, I'm going to have a lot of links in the show notes on this on this episode because this is not something you're going to get in a half hour, 45 minutes. It just It is complicated, but there is a wide embrace. Dr. Leonard is showing us how we can wrap our arms around this entire situation with just some good, accurate testing. It changes the predictability model enormously because we actually know what we're doing instead of shooting at windmills. It's just that's the way it is. So, Jay, I want to thank you very much. In closing, tell us how we can get a hold of you. What would be the best way to contact you? Uh, best way is just through my website, drjlombard.com. Uh, that, that, you know, anyone could follow the links and see what different things I'm involved with. Uh, you know, writing books and, uh, you know, doing research and, and seeing patients is all part of my love of the brain and trying to help people in any way I can. So uh, thank you for the time to discuss some of the research that I'm involved with. But, uh, you know, the mind of God is, is a different work altogether. It's more about sort of existentialism and belief systems and how that affects our biology. But that's, that's a whole different discussion, Charlie. <laughs> you know, we need to come back for that because it's another interest I have to tell you the truth. And we could just talk about the mind of God. I'd have to read it. Then we could have a discussion. But I would welcome you coming back to talk about it, Jay. It'd be, be a lot of fun. Thank you very much for having me, Charlie. Good night. Thank you, buddy. You have a good one. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive, misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.